Amen. That is true. Let's pray in that truth. Father God, thank you for prompting and bringing our worship into our soul, making it a pleasure, making it a delight, for always building in us this joy of our salvation. It is your mercy that gives us assurance that we will see your face in glory. Thank you, God, that you've not established a joy that rests or an assurance that rests in our own accomplishment, in our achievement, in our faithfulness, in our worthiness. According to your mercy, we are confident that we will see your face in glory. God, I pray this morning for the preaching of your word, for the way that it will build all those who hear it in faithfulness and in obedience. And ultimately, Lord, the thing you're doing in this congregation of brothers and sisters in sharing the gospel with people who have joined us today who don't know the good news of Jesus Christ, the thing you're doing is magnifying the fame of your name. And so God, in that spirit, make us to walk eagerly, casting off the weight of burden that sidetracks us and derails us, and let us move forward today in the instruction of your word as it illuminates the path that you've laid out for us. God, I pray for the preaching of your word here. I pray this morning for our brother Jeff Hines as he preaches at Highland, I pray for his preaching to be um, joyful to him as he spent time studying. I pray for it to be edifying to the saints and a great proclamation of the glory of Jesus Christ. So God, we, we pray in confidence that your word never returns void in these places. So in this, in this worship gathering, make us to continue to praise you as we humble ourselves to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please take your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and this is a new section in Romans. It is a bit of a subsection. It goes along with 12 through 16 in way of Christian living. But it is another section about interpersonal relationship in diversity of opinions. Do you admit this morning you think differently about a couple things than some people who are in the room? Do you think differently about a couple things than people who are in the room? This chapter and 15 are going to be helpful for us. And how do we think differently about our opinions, even the opinions we hold very strongly to? How do we hold them differently and charitably? So Romans chapter 14, and I will only be focused on one verse today, verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, not to quarrel over opinions. As faith, welcome him, not to quarrel over opinions. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church, heading out this door and down the hall. You're welcome to uh, join the children and those teachers who are ministering to our families today. 
and Children's Church. We think about ourselves as a church, the word church in the New Testament, the word means the gathering. Here we are, gathered. We sometimes in our culture call our church a community. It's a community. The word community means a gathering of individuals who have common interest. The fact is, though, you could argue we don't have common interests. And a lot of things. Are we then still a community? And the wonderful truth is we are a community because we have one overarching interest over top of all of the lesser interests. So we are a gospel community. Not just ambiguous, but gospel community. Now, what we're going to talk about today in being the gospel community goes all the way back to chapter 12. You want to just turn the page, you can see the heading over chapter 12 and verse 9. We know the context of what we're being taught is the mark of true Christians. That's the heading over verse 9 in chapter 12 in my Bible. The mark of true Christians. So, Chapters 12 through 16 are a great handbook for us on the application of all the wonderful truths in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Amazing salvation has come to us, and this is how that salvation works out in us. The marks of true Christians. This, what are those marks that distinguish our community having one dominant Christian interest? In other words, Would you think with me about the way we prioritize our fellowship? What is the one thing that's most important to us? And how do we distinguish it from all the other things that are also important, but not as important to us? So the title here for our sermon today is When the Weak Are Welcomed. No one in the room wants to be identified as the weak. However, we are all appropriately identified in some way as being weak in faith. We all are. In this sermon, we're going to begin studying the instruction from God on how we interact with each other in a way that is tolerant of each other's preferences. In our culture, that might be a trigger word. Tolerant of each other's preferences. Because we live in what's called a post-modern culture. Uh, post-modernism has been, it's, it's not new, it didn't just start in 2020 or 2021. Post-modernism is an old worldview that basically summarizes there are no absolute realities. There are only subjective or perceived realities. And one of the anthems of postmodernism is absolute tolerance at all cost of everything but the intolerant. You can't tolerate the intolerant, but tolerate everything. So this culture that we're in, we could have more conversation about that some other time. When the Bible calls us to have tolerance in our differences... We might say, ooh, is is that really gospel function? In other words, shouldn't our unity be so robust that what we see in a 
like ours is uniformity. I would say no, not necessarily. I would also say no, thankfully. Our unity, gospel community, is not uniformity. Edmund Burke talked about our preferences, our liberties, this way. He said, men are qualified for liberty in the exact proportion to their willingness to put moral chains on their appetites. You can have freedom of choice to the same degree you're willing to deny yourself those choices. Hmm. When this passage talks about tolerance of liberty, it is a passage delivered to regenerate believers. That's important. It's so important. I just met with a man in my office this week and we were just talking about the work of the Spirit in us. How amazing it is that we are led by the Spirit of God. The will of God becomes so precise to us because the Spirit lives in us. What I mean by that is this. We know from God's word that it is his will for us to be saved. We know from God's word that it is his will for us to be sanctified. First Thessalonians says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's pretty black and white. God wants you to grow up as a Christian. We know from the word of God that it is his desire for us to be fully in the spirit. In Ephesians. We know that it is God's will for us to seek the kingdom of God above all other kingdoms. Now, if you're saved, if you're growing into Christ-likeness, if you're fully in the spirit that seals us to the day of redemption, and if your passion is first to seek the kingdom of God, then do the will of God. Well, I don't know what it is. Sure you do. Do the will of God. This text says... Because all those things are true of you, salvation, sanctification, spirit filling, and seeking right priorities, you have some choices to make. Go ahead and make them. They're yours to make. Let me just say a word. As you've been hopefully engaged in the service so far, you've heard Gary praying passionately for people to go to the ends of the earth and speak the praise of Jesus' name. You've heard us sing You've maybe seen Aaron moved by the the burden and the joy that it is to be able to go. And some of you might be tempted to say, well, I've never called to that. I'm going to contend, please, there might be some people who disagree with me. I'm going to contend that going to the mission field is a choice you should be considering. In other words, if you're waiting where you are for God to peel the roof off your house and the Holy Spirit to peek his head into the ceiling and say, you're supposed to be going, you are contently going to wait right there. But if you're saved, sanctified, fully in the Spirit, and seeking first his kingdom then you get to choose to go. You get to make a choice. You want to go? Go! You have skills to go? Go! 
Your brothers and sisters affirm you to go? Go. All right. You have choices to make. This is what this text is all about. Making choices. And how do I live with a person who seems to make choices different than I would make? That's the heart of this. But this is a text to those people who are saved people. The Spirit working in those people. Those people who have been buried with Christ and raised to new life. How can we go on in sin? We are not talking about the choice to sin. It's important to me pastorally that when we start talking about all these choices you get to have, that I make it very clear to you as a shepherd, you don't get to choose sin. It's very important to me. So let me take you to a couple passages. In Matthew 18, for example, Jesus says, if you see one of your brothers who has choices to make, sinning, remind him, you don't get to choose sin. Sin is forbidden. In James chapter 5, we're told, if you see a brother that's wandering off into sin and you lovingly call him back, that you save him from a multitude of more sinning and even saving his soul from death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Since we have these amazing promises in Christ, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in a fear of God. Paul told the Thessalonians to be careful not even to eat with people who refuse to turn from sinning. When it comes to sin, why do we say we have no choice? Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in gentleness, keeping watch over yourself so that you too don't become tempted. Sin is contagious. When I care for someone who is dabbling in sin, I am not just caring for that person, but the people around them. The longer the church strives to receive the affirmation of the culture it's set in, the more foreign that becomes. In other words, telling people sin is forbidden becomes increasingly more foreign in a postmodern culture because postmodern says, well, it might be sin to you, but it's not sin to them. Let them do what they want to do. Who are you to say it's wrong? feels like, ooh, I don't want the neighborhood to think we're doing good work here. And so the neighborhood says, don't tell them they can't choose sin. And the church is constantly pressured with, they don't want us to tell them it's sin and forbidden. And I understand that that is a very real pressure that churches are under in this culture. 1 Corinthians 5 gives an example of that. Paul writes to the church, and man, there may be no church in the New Testament that was celebrating grace more than Corinth. So Corinth is like, we're a grace community. You have all the liberty you want. You want to choose to be sexually immoral? That's okay. The blood of Christ covers sin. And Paul writes, and he goes, what? So in 1 Corinthians 5.1, he says, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality in your church, and it's the kind of immorality that even the unchurched people think is bad. That's really bad. In other words, 
a man has taken his father's wife in adultery. And he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, and you are being arrogant about it. What, what did he mean you're being arrogant? That was a group of Christians that got together and sang songs about grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace greater than all of our sins, and then looked at a man who was in an immoral relationship with his stepmom and said, no problem, grace covers a multitude of sin. And they said, we got grace better than everybody else. And Paul says, you are arrogant and not telling people in your church sin is forbidden. He says, Ought you not rather to be mourning? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I want to say those things to make sure that when we talk about your liberty to make choices, it does not apply to your liberty to choose sinning. I'm going to preach for weeks about liberty and choice and freedom in Christ. And I want to make very, very sure that I start by saying we are not including sin in the choices you get to make. It's forbidden. Today, we set out to look at this command of how we apply tolerance as Christians in the area where we are sometimes very, very different. We have to understand what it is that we're called to be accepting of. So, I'm going to just give two points from this verse. You probably see how it breaks, right? In chapter 14, verse 1, you probably see how it breaks. First, accept the weaker brother or sister. That's the first instruction. So, friends, we have this instruction from the Spirit of God. He says, listen, accept weaker brothers or sisters. Okay? That's the first thing we're going to talk about. We want to make sure we do it faithfully. Second thing. Don't accept them with ulterior motives. Like, okay, we'll accept them. We're going to fix all the stuff they do different from us. So that's the second thing. Accept them, but not for argument. Not for the King James Bible that I grew up with says, not for doubtful disputing. In other words, arguments that could go on all day with no conclusion because there's no absolute right or wrong answer to that particular question. Doubtful disputes. So let's look at our number one. We all have weaknesses in our faith. Welcome those who are weak. We all have weaknesses in our faith. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. All of us fall into the category of weakness in some area. Maybe you think you don't. Let me give you a short list. You feel guilty about certain kinds of music, Bible translation, politics, education choice, child rearing, dating versus courting, family worship style, playing with cards, drinking alcohol, going to the movies, what denominational church you'll attend, corporate boycotts of industries that are doing things that are anti-Christian, just to name a few. And if in that list there was something you thought, well, yeah, there's no choice to be made in that category, that's just wrong. That's what Romans 14 verse 1 is talking about. Welcome those people who say, well, of course we have to boycott the cog industry. Just, there's no cog industry, that's... 
the Flintstones, I think. Or Jetsons, Jetsons, that's Jetsons. He works for the cod industry. So of course we have to boycott the cod industry. They spend money in unchristian ways. And you think, well, uh-huh. Or, or, well, you can't go to the cinema. Or, you can't have alcohol. Or, maybe I can stop there. <laughs> maybe I've used enough examples. You get the point. Someone, someone in the room says, oh, that, that can't be okay. And the question is, is that what the Bible says? Or is that your good intention attempt to set a barrier somewhere close to what the Bible says you can't do so that you can, in some sort of self-sufficient way, resist temptation to do what the Bible says you're not supposed to do? So as for the one who is weak in the faith, which is all of us, by the way, I made the list. So my things aren't on the list. But I have them. <laughs> the one who is weak in faith, the weak is often someone who has a concern about something they regard to be taboo, at least. Most often, like the church in Rome, they are things that pertain to their past. So as diverse as our pasts are, our list of taboos are as diverse. So let's understand this first audience, right? So Paul's writing to a church in Rome. A lot of Jewish people and a lot of Gentile people doing church together. Let me just say, Romans 14 and 15 is all about the church potluck at the church in Rome. That's what it's all about. It's about what day they go to church, and it's about what they bring to share as a meal. And Romans 14 is addressing something just that practical. Listen, we have to understand this original audience What we have here is a group of pagan. They were, they were unreligious or ah-religious. And they are coming now into community with a group of people that were legalists. So what you have is people who had a background that was full-on license and a people with a background that was full-on law. And now they're coming together. And according to Romans 14, let's just read the next couple of verses. In verse 2, Romans 14, 2, one person believes you may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. I do not want to be that weak person. <laughs> let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems a day more important than another. Like there are, there are more holy days in the week. While another person esteems all days the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So that's just one small snapshot of what's going to be discussed over the next chapter and a half. He talks about things that we eat. And days that we regard as most important. <clears throat> the pagan Gentiles coming from a background of idol worship. So just to be real simple here, what we have is <clears throat> these Gentiles had been involved in worshiping false gods. And one of the things that was done in the worship of false gods was making animal sacrifice to these gods. And then once the animal sacrifice was done, once that chunk of meat had been burned on an altar of sacrifice to an idol... Then, you got this cooked meat, what do you do? 
that, well, you take it down and you sell it on the market. I mean, there's no refrigeration, so you, you, you sell it on the market. And what would happen is <clears throat> the Gentile, now Christian, would go through the market and see a piece of cooked lamb or goat and say, ooh, I cannot buy that. I know that my money buying that is supporting all the things that happened in the worship of false gods. And that was once used as an expression of adoration of a God that is false. I can't participate in that. Of course, the reference to dietary restrictions. So, it's the church potluck. And the Gentile Christians bring in shrimp or lobster. You know, like several of you do church potlucks. (laughs) And... And they bring in, you know, lobster or crab legs. And the Jews go, shellfish! We can't have that! Why? God called it unclean. Yeah, he and Peter already had this debate. The Jews are coming from a past where, oh, the calendar mattered, right? The calendar mattered so much. Like Saturday mattered a lot. Saturday was really important. A lot of religious holidays. Gentiles had some too, but I don't think Paul is defending liberty in the ones they had. In other words, the Gentiles had some days they thought were more lucky than other days. There were days in the calendar they thought were more lucky days. I don't think Paul's defending their superstition about lucky days. The truth of all this is that we see, and we'll see it more in the weeks to come, That weakness that we feel is often something that is tied to our past. And because of its connection with our past, our conscience is hyperactive. We have such a strong conscience. It's it's just working overtime. So let me give an example, and I don't mean to make any one thing uncomfortable. If, before your regeneration, you had a strong gambling addiction then you might be the kind of person who has come to the conscious, conscious conclusion that doing anything with cards is bad. If, if you were a person who was addicted to nicotine, you might still be a person who thinks smoking a pipe is bad. Or an alcoholic. You might think, how can you possibly have any alcohol in your home? So you see what I'm saying? It's often linked to our past. And our conscience becomes very overactive. So when he says weakness in faith, he's not saying saving faith. He's not saying that this person isn't saved. They have a concept of faith, but not saving faith. He's not saying that. We will see this from the illustrations he gives. He says they've been accepted by God. You shouldn't be condemning them. The concern is, listen closely, please. I want you to hear this. The concern is They had become weak when they thought possibly their practical righteousness, their day-to-day operations of righteousness were having an impact on their positional righteousness. That's a weakness. And that's a weakness in faith. Somehow, by my choosing to abstain from taboo things of my past, or anything associated with those taboo things, because you understand we're talking about drunkenness and gambling being sinful things, and so now you're saying 
cards or alcohol are sinful things. Assuming that because I'm sensitive to that sin I came out of, I can't associate with anything linked to that because my positional or my practical righteousness, the the things I do, either increase or decrease the condition of my position in Christ. So the question relates to our ongoing understanding of the gospel, doesn't it? it? It really relates to our understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. We wonder if there are things that are unworthy of our salvation. If somehow Jesus deserves better because he's done so much for us, shouldn't I not abstain from card games to show him that I'm doing my part too? Let me further illustrate this in conclusion of this point by saying this. We have some friends here in church with us this morning who haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ. Not yet. They know about him, maybe, but they don't know that he is the source of all their hope. Like, they can confess their sin to God because Jesus has paid the price for sinners at Calvary. They don't know that yet. Or maybe they know it, but they haven't in faith believed it. And maybe one of the things they would say to us if friends and said, but would you trust in Jesus alone? They might say, well, I'm thankful for Jesus and what he's done, but I think I'm a pretty good person. What they're saying is, my practical works, my goodness affects whether I get into heaven or not. My practice of righteousness is the difference in whether I'm accepted by God or not. And so... Our friends are sadly mistaken. But I use that as an illustration to say, does the church sometimes fall victim to something very similar? Do we say, well, yes, sure, Christ, but somehow, mysteriously, and I'm not quite sure how my function of righteousness makes the completion of my position in heaven with Christ better or worse. Church at Galatia struggled with that. And Paul writes, I'm kind of shaking his head and says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in grace and are turning now to a different gospel. He says, not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So basically what Paul's saying to the church at Galatia is, You heard the gospel, and now you're acting like there's some part B of the gospel. Like, well, yeah, the gospel saved you, and now in order to make the quality of that salvation, you know, worthwhile, your positional righteousness has to match it. You've got to earn it now. You've got to earn the keeping of it or or earn the the good standing of it. And Paul says, "You've, you've actually turned your back on the gospel you first heard. Christ alone. Christ alone. His righteousness as your robe. So, the weak is one who's putting a measure of confidence in their flesh. And anytime we put some sort of hope in flesh, we can rightly be described as weak. 
Because the flesh is weak. And the flesh won't be able to satisfy. It won't be able to to keep the standards we put on it. So when we put any sort of confidence in the choices, not the abstaining from sin, the choices that we make, we fall in that category of being weak. Let's look at our second. We are all weak in the faith in some area, but second, even though we are all weak in faith in some area, our work right here of caring for our brothers and sisters is discipleship work, not persuasion work. Okay? So, truth is, you're looking at a guy who's got some weaknesses in my faith. I think there are some things I need to do so that God doesn't stop being happy with me. And you might be a person struggling with that too. But even though that's a reality, we are not trying to change each other's opinions about Christian behavior. We are doing the work of discipleship. Okay? So the second part of verse 1. Welcome them, but not for persuasion or debate or argument. Not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, don't tell the weak brother, yeah, come on in. We're we're a place for you. We'll write that on our website, a place for everybody. But then when you get here, we do kind of the bait and switch. Christians are really good at the bait and switch. Do a really cool ministry. You come in and we're going we're gonna to do all the most fun stuff ever. And then people are like, yeah, I want to come in and do fun stuff. It's like, a, it's like a free amusement park. And then they get here and you're like, aha, now we're going to preach. Christians tend to be really good at the bait and switch. And we don't do bait and switch. We don't welcome them and say, oh, sure, come as you are. But as soon as you get here, we're going to change that. I'm arguing over opinions. The scripture gives us four sort of walls. Okay? So, welcome the weak in faith, but not to argue about opinions. And in order to make sure we don't do that, we're going to build a fort this morning. Okay? We're going to build a fort. And the fort's going to have walls. There are four walls that are going to protect us. We're going to get inside these walls and they're going to protect us from feeling this pressure to change our friends' opinions about things that are not sinful. Okay? Wall number one. We should confess that weakness might not be sin, but license might be. So I want to be practical with you, so let me just say, you've got this brother or sister in church who says, boy, my background, alcohol was such a hard thing for me. It was, it was really enslaving. It was sin. It was, it was drunkenness. And now I'm in Christ, and I, I, I want to be careful and not even get close to returning to that, so I'm just, I just, there's none allowed in our house. And if we go out to supper together, and you order some, I'm going to have to leave the supper. Okay? Ooh. All right. So the Bible says, welcome them. Not to argue over opinion. Okay, we're going to go to supper and I'm going to order wine and then I'm going to handcuff you to the table so I can tell you that you're being overly sensitive. No. Weakness may not be sin, but license might be. So if this were sin, it would say, welcome the one who has no faith. It doesn't say that. It says, welcome the one who is weak in faith. They are able to please God because what they have is saving faith. Romans 14, 23. Whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
Not only is the person not sinning, this is one expression of their worship. Look at chapter 14, verse 6. He says, the person who chooses to eat the vegetables is doing it as unto the Lord. So when that, when that lady or that man goes to dinner with you and says, because of my past, I just can't. As unto the Lord? Yeah, as unto the Lord. Okay, I respect that. appreciate that. Okay, so that's that first wall to protect us. Their weakness is not a sin you need to fix. Second, weakness is not legalism. That is not fair for us to say that their sensitive conscience is legalism. Because that is not what's happening in Romans 14. Paul is not saying, okay, we got a group of Gentiles and a group of Jews who think that as long as they don't uh, play games with playing cards, that God's going to save them. That's legalism. Legalism is to say that there is some set of standards that I perform in order to get forgiveness of sin. And when a person says, I I just, I can't do that joyfully because of my past, that's not legalism. So wall number one, weakness is not sin. Wall number two, weakness is not legalism. Listen to Galatians 1.6. I already read the first part. I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted and have now turned to what you think is a different gospel. Christ has set us free Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He says this, look, I, Paul, I'm saying to you that if you go back into the religious practice of self-righteousness and circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's sin. That's not what Paul's saying in Romans 14. He says, I came and I shared the gospel with you, and you're like, yeah, Jesus alone, Jesus alone. And then someone came and said, well, Jesus plus. And then the whole church went, maybe they're right. Maybe we can have Jesus, but if we don't have, in this case, circumcision, then we don't have salvation. That's legalism. That's not Romans 14, that's Galatians 1 and 5. Let's put a third wall up. <clears throat> Weakness is not sin. <clears throat> Weakness is not legalism. Number three, God has already welcomed the weak. Just look at verse three. Romans 14, three. God has already welcomed him. Later in verse 15, we're gonna read, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Be careful, as I mentioned Peter a minute ago, be careful you don't know what Peter did and call unclean what God has already called clean. God has welcomed the weak. Let's finish the walls by building the fourth one. God will judge our weaknesses. God will judge our weaknesses. Sometimes it can be sad when you see a brother who's living with a lot of weakness of conscience. It can be. And you might have a really upright motive to try to fix that. And maybe some gospel emphasis would be helpful. But when we become the judge of their weaknesses, when they say, oh, I just, I feel guilt. But the Bible doesn't say, I know, I know, but I feel guilt. When we become the judge of that, we forget that it is God who will judge those weaknesses. Verse four, Romans 14, verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. And he will be upheld 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. To the one who eats or the one who abstains, let it be to the Lord. So if if there are some people here who don't yet know the Christian life, they're not Christians yet. They know about Christians, but they're not Christians. And, And you're here today, and I'm so glad you're here. I want you to understand that what we are stressing here is that there is a change that works in us because of Christ. There is not a need to work for Christ. We are not able or called to repay Christ. And sometimes the weakness looks like that. Sometimes the weakness looks like, I'm so amazed at what he's done for me, I have to find some way to make it up to him. That is so sadly weak. And it needs, it needs to be exposed to the light of the gospel. But we build this fort to protect us from arguing over opinions. In other words, I don't need to convince you to go to the theater Friday night. I have no burden to convince you to do that. I don't need to convince you. Here's here's mine. This is the first time in six years this morning, almost six years. This is the first time in almost six years that I have stood here in this pulpit wearing a shirt with short sleeves. You knew it? I've never done that. And in my weakness... I wa- because of my past, in my weakness, I walked out of my house this morning and it was not nearly as hot as I thought it was going to be. I almost went back inside and changed. What a mess, right? What a mess. Welcome me. And please, please don't argue with me about my sleeves. What I'm saying there, friends, is that the work of Christ in us is a complete work. It's sufficient. It is everything. And this extra stuff, and some of them I'm picking on today, and some of them are easy to pick on. Some of them are harder. Some of them are harder. You know, there's things like working on Sunday. Should you work on Sunday? If your boss says you have to go into work, should you do that? Oh, that's hard. Well, I don't want to do that. My boss is making me do it like three out of four Sundays. Oh, that's hard. Some hard things. Our job is to magnify Christ, to trust only in Christ, to bring each other to look only to Christ, and to take our eyes off other peripheral expressions of how we earn what we have in Christ. Our church has certainly been influenced by our culture. I would describe American culture as moralistic deism. There is a God, he exists, he has absolutely very little to do with us, and so therefore we should be good people, because there is a God that exists. Moralistic deism is the religion of America. And that cultural context has influence on us. As we go through these two chapters, I hope you'll consider with me the reality that the Bible here is going to call the weaker believer 
the person with the longer religious resume. The person with the greater list of thou shalt nots is what this passage is going to refer to as a brother who's got some struggle. The word weak is offensive. I know, I don't mean to be offensive, but that weakness, like, oh, I just feel the burden of my to-do list. That's the context of what's happening here in Romans 14 and 15. Your notes, I have four reasons why I say that's true. We tend, as Christians, to the temptation of saying, no, weakness is the person who does bad things. Not in this text. In this text, as we talk about Paul starting this, this book in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. People who start putting trust in something other than that power are wrestling with a weakness. So 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. There are people in every assembly who will sometimes use liberty as an excuse to justify anything they want to do. Romans 6.1. Let's go on sinning so grace abounds. The church at Corinth. Like you can have that sin because grace covers it. There are people who are so weakened by guilt that they will hold on to their preferences as a way of somehow earning Christ's persevering grace. They live in fear because they feel so entrenched in unnecessary bondage because of past experience and they're terrified of doing something that's their relationship with God. Ephesians 4, verse 2 and 3, we read these words. Bear one another's burdens. To bear each other's burdens literally means put up with each other. I wonder just right now, as friends of mine, I wonder if I could ask you if you feel a willingness to put up with someone who thinks something is sin to them that's not really sin. And I wonder if you just feel, a, oh, I have to fix that. You can't, really, you can't really see how great the work of Christ is if you think that. I have to fix that. I wonder if some of you who live in the church and you think, you know, pastor wore short sleeves, I, I'm not sure I can come back next week. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if, if we're willing to do that, be patient with them all. Because our unity isn't uniformity. You're so different from each other, and from me, in so many ways. And that's not a curse. It's a gift. I'm thankful we're so different. So let's not try to undo that gift. So the mark of true Christian, right? That's what we're still in. Romans 12, 9. The mark of a true Christian is the theme of this text. What are the marks of our friendship, our community? Would people look at our community and say, oh, yeah, you're a community because you have chairs instead of pews. (laughs) You're a community because you have drums instead of an organ. Or you're a community because you use that translation of the Bible. I wonder, what are the marks of our Christianity? Would it be obvious that there's a lot of different opinions, 
But there's one overarching theme that makes us community. I hope so. I think it's a great testimony of the Christian church to say there's a lot of difference here. But boy, the one thing that matters most is the same. Jesus Christ and his work at Calvary on our behalf is occasion for our worship. So, I would summarize it this way. In those things that are absolutely essential, we should strive for gospel purity. We cannot agree to disagree on some things. If you come and say, you know, in my opinion, Christ was not actually divine, but in fact was a created being. You don't get liberty in that. We are going to strive for gospel purity there. But there are some issues that are non-essential. And in those issues, I would call us to have unity. You do it different than I would, but we're good friends anyway. And in everything we do, the disagreements and the things that are okay to disagree about, there has to be charity. So as disciples of Jesus Christ, when we go through these two chapters, we are going to have to pray for God to give us discernment. Discernment to cut it straight. Discernment to cut straight. When does something that is a personal weakness become sin? When do we need to step in and lovingly rebuke a friend? And when do we need to stand back and say, we're different there, but it's okay. It's just secondary opinions. So it's all right. We will have to have spirit-led, word of God illuminated discernment to know where those are, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for what we've already seen, and we're thankful to be able to go into these two chapters because there's so many threats to the unity of a church, and you have always been good. And here you've given us two full chapters that will help build a fort that guards and protects us from the, the, the onslaught, the, the assault that would produce disunity. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you have loved your church and given us every word and instruction for righteousness. You've completely furnished us in your word. I'm thankful for it, and I pray that we would grow. I I pray for your spirit to continue to work discernment in us because, God, our comprehension and applications of this truth are feeble, and sometimes we're going to struggle, and we're going to approach people in confrontational ways when we shouldn't, and sometimes we're even going to be tempted to be passive and let things go when we should, in fact, speak to those things. And so, Lord God, we are so needful, but you are so providential, and we're grateful in our worship in Christ's name. Amen.